Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom, and I am back with my friend Ian Hathaway, who is a recent author of the Startup Community Way with Brad Feld. We had a great first episode that you can go listen to. This is part two, and I'm excited to have him back. I think we could probably have part three, four, five, and, and make this a regular thing. But Ian just has so many things going on between some of the institutes he's a part of, uh, the Center for American Entrepreneurship. And so we've got uh, a lot of things to cover, but we're going to jump in right now and talk about how do you rally support in a startup ecosystem, in a startup community. Uh, and they, in the book, they talk about entrepreneurial ecosystems and startup communities. We'll, we'll spend a little time even talking about the, the differences, you guys. But in either case, you need people in these various institutions and groups in the community to participate. So Ian, you know, talk about how you guys think about really getting uh, support and rallying support and you know, this, this concept of contagion, which often is, is viewed like COVID is as, as a contagion, but we, we wanna think about it in a positive light in this case. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it takes those early adopters, uh, you know, really to get things moving. Right, so it doesn't need to be a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't need to be in this formalized way. Uh, you know, there's, I've seen in some cities that they feel very early on that you need to brand the effort or create an organization, and you don't have to do that first. Uh, you know, you want to build your your minimum viable product, which is see who's interested in this, right? So, um, you know. Once, let's say you have two or three or five or 10 entrepreneurs around who want to try to kickstart something, you know, get things going with an informal gathering, dinner, uh, you know, drinks, whatever, whatever floats your boat, breakfast, mm -hmm. harder now under this current environment to get things going that way. But, but there are these networks that exist and it's just a matter of putting it together, talking about what what your goals are, what you want to achieve, how to start bringing people in. Um, it's sort of like therapy, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit, I wouldn't get started if you're not committed, committed. to trying yeah. it for an extended period of time. It, it will take time. Um, you know, you brought up this notion about contagion, right? We talk about it in the book. Um, for people who didn't maybe listen to the first episode, I'd go back and listen, but you know, in complex adaptive systems, uh, contagion is, you know, one of the key characteristics. You mentioned, um, you know, the spreading of a virus, right, which happens through a single mm -hmm. contact. We talk about, you know, social media content, which can go viral, it's sort of based on that. Um, that's different. That's a simple contagion because mm -hmm. it just takes one point of contact for a full transmission. This, what I call complex contagion, um, it requires repeated mm. interactions. It requires, um, you know, the adoption of norms by, you know, some quantity of people because it's a behavioral change, right? It's not, 
you know, if you're, if you're scrolling through, you're doom scrolling through Twitter, <clears throat> you know, on a daily basis, yes. that information is being transmitted to you. And we've seen the evidence, it's, you know, Granovetter's fa famous paper from the 1970s, 1973, about weak ties, the six, six degrees of separation, right? Mm -hmm. That's how information spreads, but behavior spreads in, cluster, in a clustered local dynamic um, through reinforced behavior. So that's how you got to do it. You know, all right, we're going to, whether it's, we're going to do Tuesday morning open coffee club um, or whatever your, whatever the event is that you want to get it going, but just commit to doing it every week for a year, regardless of what happens. Mm. Um, actively try to recruit people in um, using, um, using those weak ties you may have, trying to get people to bring their networks and then just kind of go from there. So as you think, I think that's a great, uh, even, baseline prescription. So let's, let's play that out a little bit. So we, we start getting that group together as you think about uh, the, the need for behavior change. What are, in your mind, what are some of the key goals that uh, that early group should be setting? Well, it's like one of those things. I mean, have you ever been to one of those um, events where there isn't an agenda? Mm -hmm. And people are kind of looking around to the organizers for yes. guidance on, well, we're looking to you. Um, I mean, maybe that's okay in the first sense, but the whole point is that we want many leaders, right? Mm -hmm. It's not one or two people. Yes. Um, so even if you're getting the thing going, the thing to stress is that what we're trying to do is to get um, emergent um, value connections occurring, right? Getting people talking, mm -hmm. bringing more folks in, um, growing their networks, just getting to know what people are working on, what their challenges are. And then, you know, letting, letting what the priority areas might be bubble up. But the, the key for me is saying, look, we're not the kings of this. Let's say it's the, two, the handful of, you know, women and men who started the thing. It's not about us. It's about all of us. Mm -hmm. and, um, and instilling that early on and, and putting people to work. Yeah. And I mean, do you think in many cases, putting people to work is based on identifying what those key needs are that others have? Is it putting to work in recruiting others? Yes. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's probably all of the above, right? Yeah. Well, and that's why I mean, it's complex because it's not, it's not so linear and, and clear. And, you know, what, what I've found, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've, uh, talked about this on any of my prior episodes. When I first got here, there was a group, and it still exists today. And every month they would meet, and it was about startups and innovation. And every month they would pull the audience and say, "How many of you are here for the first time?" And every time, more than half of the people there were there for the first time. Mm -hmm. And what that showed me after a while, I thought, "Wow, this is crazy." That means people are showing up hoping they're going to solve a problem tonight. And if they don't get that problem solved tonight, they're not, they're not coming back. Yeah. And they're not either feeling invited in or that, that they, they don't have the right behavior of maybe I can give to some of the other people here and that would be my opportunity to, to come back. And I, I always felt like when we'd be in a small group in that and people would, go around the room, what are you looking for? Looking for a job, I'm looking for money, I'm looking for a, 
uh, somebody from my team, what have you. And I always found at that point, I was trying to figure out how I could help these people. Like what, what can I give was why I showed up, but I didn't find a lot of other people trying to show up with, there were some others there, but not a lot. And so how, like it's the behavior change, the flip of what you guys talk about this in the book. So what have others found in other communities that can ca help catalyze that? Well, it's the same thing with, you know, where we're talking about the organizers. Like if you're showing up like and expecting that you're going to get something, you know, spectacular out of one event. And if you don't, you're not going to return. Like that's just not how networks operate. Right. right. You got to build relationships. Yes. And what I've found in my career, um, you know, this isn't calculating. It's just my mode of operation. I think a lot of entre successful entrepreneurs operate this way. You're looking, you know, I'm coming with something of value, right? I'm not looking to extract value. Um, in the beginning, what ends up happening is that you get more value that way because yes. you have paid into this, right? People are vested in those, in those relationships and that's what they are. They're, they're relationships, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's the same thing with those, with those actors, you know, don't expect to go into startup, you know, and startup community participation as this is a, you know, one-time, two-time solution, right? Uh, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. It, it, the, yes. And only do the, I mean, Carrie, look, you and I, you know, we've made this connection. Uh, we've had a number of connection points over a short amount of time. We just met. I may have this like amazing um, connection for you six months from now. Mm -hmm. um, but you're not asking for that today. It's just going to become clear to me. And we have built this social capital, right. which, you know, we talk in the book about, we call it networks of trust. And that's when you extract value from those relationships yes. down the line. Once, um, once that trust has been established and, and entrepreneurs have got to start thinking that way. Um, I just said last night, uh, speaking to a group in uh, Iowa, about this, this thing, this topic always comes up. Entrepreneurs are too busy to participate. Yes, that and always comes up. That's right. Oh, I, I, yeah, I've been under a rock for 10 years building my company. Yeah, and that's just not true. You always have time. Uh, it's just a choice you're making. And I guess my prompt would be, it's not that you shouldn't be obsessing over your company and your product. It's that you're making large assumptions about um, the opportunity cost of going and engaging on a regular basis, right? I do think there is this cyclical dynamic, right? Some entrepreneurs will come in and out yes. uh, of the startup community at points in time. It's good to know that there will be people keeping it on the rails. That's why it's really good to have multiple leaders involved. Um, but I just want to challenge this, the, the assumption that by not participating, right, that's a better outcome for their business, right? That's right. I that, totally agree with that. Um, yeah. Right. yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a scenario years ago where the, the entrepreneur uh, and I was in, you know, early in a, in a company as almost a, a co-founder type and the entrepreneur would sort of deferred to me. Like, well, you're the community guy. You, you do the community part. I'll do this part. And I, uh, I'm always of the belief that you're going to build a better company by, uh, by, by contributing whatever you can into. And I, part of that, I, I feel fortunate. I grew up in a family business where that those investments into the community were already well-established 
you know, generations before me. And so mm -hmm. it just became sort of doctrine to me of like, that's, that's part of what you, you do in it's, you know, you can look at it however you want. I just, um, I, I'm a belief you're going to help others. They're going to help you. It's, it's sort of how the, the world order is. And, uh, I guess that gets to sort of the leadership side. As you think about leadership, are you seeing any trends at, let's say generationally, are you seeing, uh, uh, an insurgence of youth or are you seeing more, uh, energy around this from kind of mid-career give back at the end of career? Where, where are you seeing any, any trends in the kind of leaders that really are committed to this? Yeah. Well, look, I think there's, um, I mean, it's also, it's really dependent on each place, right? Culture is really, mm -hmm. um, local. Yeah. It's really place specific. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you and I both grew up in the industrial mm -hmm. and agricultural heartland, right? Yeah. It's not that people are programmed there to think uh, about networks or increasing returns, right? I think for many of the people I went to high school with, right? They were, I would say a third of my class was teed up to walk into mm -hmm. the GM plan and that was yep. all set up and they, there were no mm -hmm. entrepreneurial ambitions because you didn't need to. You were gonna get this safe job, 25 bucks an hour, right? Uh, yep. Benefits, pension, yep. reti early retirement. And so it actually will take generations for that to be bred out of the cultural fabric. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a very different dynamic from the West Coast, right? Uh, and actually within the West Coast, we can talk about that. Sure. Um, I do think there is a generational thing, which is in particular, young, the, the younger people are growing up on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I was born in 1980. I graduated from college in 2002. And the internet was not even really a thing we started using that much. I remember I got a mm -hmm. cell phone. Uh, that's what we call it then, you know, uh, my senior year, right? Like I was, mm -hmm. I, I'm sort of like the beginning of the end of the pre-digital era, right? And so, um, at least for massive adoption. Mm -hmm. and so I think those people are used to think they have a different mental model, right? I, I, I think they're more open, they're more collaborative. I don't think it's just the age thing. I do think there's something about growing up digitally sure. um, for this group and, and, and they're still young. And so, and, and we'll see. Um, I do think there's been a good shift in, um, you know, especially now in COVID, um, the fact that we're opening up our homes and our personal lives to people in such an intense mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, I believe in leading uh, through vulnerability. Mm. Uh, so for me, vulnerability means being honest, being transparent, um, expressing your self-doubts your mistakes mm -hmm. right um acknowledging the emotional side of of, of being a human uh, rather than like these split personas um and i think that's a more accepted practice than it was probably you know when my dad was uh, my sure. age um so we see those kinds of shifts um so yeah so i think i do think leadership is changing uh because it has to and um you know, I, I can still see some folks struggling with it now in the in this remote environment. I, I've been used to working remotely for years, mm -hmm. but I can see that um, there's a lot of wasteful meeting time on Zoom uh, because people are trying to stay relevant or uh, managers want to 
they want to, you know, they think that having that contact with their employees actually means that they're in control when actually people probably want more autonomy. Sure. So anyway, we're going through a giant simulation right now, an experiment. I think on the other side of it, we will see different forms of leadership and, and organizational management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think in some respects you have like this digital age, we've seen some of this, uh, but you know, the, the military industrial complex idea of, hey, the, like we have this brand that cascades from the top down, we have this structure that cascades from the top down, now, you know, you have however many people in your organization. I mean, I see it even in my own where I'm encouraging the folks on my team, like, go out, be your authentic voice. Like, you're here because you believe in what we're, we're building and you're going to tell it in a slightly different way. But that like our brand is the team of people that, that we're, uh, that, that we, we're bringing together and the, the companies that we're working with. And I think a lot of brands and companies are, are still very restrictive about how much autonomy and voice they're giving to uh, their, their people, right? So you look at that and you say, okay, could you envision a company of thousands of people where they're all sort of their own unique personal brands that roll up with with some clear values that align. And I, I don't think we've seen a, a great sense of that yet, but maybe COVID is a, is a driver for, for something like that. Yeah. And I mean, look at, on that military note, I have a fantastic book um, since you and I both like books so much um, that people should read. Uh, it's called team of teams and it's mm -hmm. written by yes. General Stanley McChrystal. Yep. It's a great, one. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that my book we talked about on episode one, uh, uses the uses complex adaptive systems to explain startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. I, unfortunately for me, came at it through, you know, the most dense teaching of that um, concept through the Santa Fe Institute, these scientists, when in fact, after I had gone through the pains of self teaching uh, that subject and applying it there, I discovered there were multiple, not, not a ton, but there were there were at least multiple sources of people applying this this thinking in the in the real world to, uh, into manage managing systems right mm -hmm. managing organizations and this to me is the best one not only because of how crystallizing the concepts are and how well written it is but also because they're talking about how um, the military the ultimate hierarchy right. the, ultimate the top down right. controlled system um, had to adapt in the face of a changing um, enemy, which right. was, um, you know, Al Qaeda in in Iraq, right? They were a rapidly evolving, digitally focused, uh, digitally organized, you know, um, loose knit organization, and the military had to adapt. And so, if they can do it, That's if right. they can adjust to this complex world and change their management structure and and, and strategy, so can anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's right. So. Let's let's talk about the recent news that's been floating around about this huge surge in new business applications during COVID. Um, we we both have a, a mutual friend in in John Deary at the Center for American Entrepreneurship, doing great work to try to bring more attention to innovation, entrepreneurship, startups in D.C., um, which is great and and. You know, there's on one hand, hey, is there is there some good things happening? That's what's causing this big 
growth and jump in the last uh, in the last few months in new business applications? Is this due to necessity of all the job loss that's happened during COVID? What what is this even real information? Like what what's your view on what's what's going on? Yeah, so let me give re, uh, listeners a, a quick explanation of what's going on. So there's this data set at the Census Bureau, which tracks every business in the US economy, right? It doesn't just track, you know, new business filing numbers, right, EINs, it then ties that to the parent structure. Mm -hmm. So we can determine if it's if the new uh, cafe on your block is a Starbucks, which is the expansion of a very old and very large firm based mm -hmm. in Seattle, or if it's a bona fide new, you know, coffee shop, Ian's, mm -hmm. Ian's Coffee, right? Um, this is important. This distinction is really important for a lot of reasons. Um, this data, while super accurate and helpful for research, is problematic for policymaking in the, in the real world because it's so lagged. You know, this database is lagged by a few years because there's a whole bunch of work that has to go on and the Census Bureau is dramatically underfunded in this country. And so this new data set called the Business Formation Statistics came out, I guess, a couple years ago. And in the COVID crisis, they're now releasing these statistics on a weekly basis. It was on a quarterly basis. But basically, they took this historical relationship between real-time business filings um, at the IRS and then this really um, robust data set, an accurate data set that was lagged, and try to make predictions about this for each business filing, is this going to be a real business? And mm -hmm. what we mean by that is, is it going to employ people? Or is this just a sole proprietor um, or a fund, right? Mm -hmm. You know, every time you raise a fund, that's a new business entity mm -hmm. or any other structure. Um, and so they feel like they've got this formula down, right? And so now with COVID, they've been releasing these statistics every week. And so they're basically able to say, this is the pace of new businesses on a weekly basis in near real time that are, uh, these are likely to, highly likely to be real businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, as you mentioned, it's off the charts, right? This got covered in uh, Wall Street Journal article yep. I was quoted in, I gave some interviews and it was really interesting to me. I had no idea people would be so interested in this. Um, and it's really not something that I track that closely anymore, but I happen to still know a lot about it. Um, so I think a couple of things are going on here. Um, first of all, although we've seen this surge in new business filings, it's really important to remember that um, preceding this and actually ongoing is that we've had many business failures, mm -hmm. right? So this may not well, it's very likely to not be purely about new opportunities, mm -hmm. right? It's about necessity, right? We've had a lot of pain and people are creating, you know, work for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, um, on the negative side, we just had some, ex some recent releases around industry. You know, what we get for timeliness, we have to lose granularity, but now we're learning a little bit about what, what these businesses are. And by far, most of them are in, um, I forget what they're calling it, but non-physical retail. So people mm -hmm. doing retail, mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe even online, Etsy, whatever. But they're, in this formula, this is important. Those are very likely to not be real businesses and employ people. But 
in this benchmarking exercise where they benchmark the, the real-time data to that historical data to, to flag whether they think it will be a real employer business, they flag all retail establishments as, as, as likely to likely. be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that was the historical relationship and that's not the case now. So I think a lot of it is not, um, you know, is not, um, you know, the type of entrepreneurship we think about. That yep. being said, however, we know that entrepreneurs respond to opportunity and we've had a massive shift, some of it cyclical, but some of it permanent in our society and our economy, the structure of both of those things. And so, of course, there are new opportunities for entrepreneurs to respond to, and I'm sure they are. Um, I don't know, I'm sure every pitch meeting you're in or every mentor engagement, right, their entrepreneur is the first thing that's coming up is here's what our business looks like during and after COVID. And so, so it's just a part of the dynamic. I think it's a comp, it's a fairly uh, nuanced story. Um, it's not all good. In fact, I would say it's mostly not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and just remember, stimulus is running out. And I, I think, you know, the rest of this year is going to look a lot different than it has so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think most people that have those traditional um, kind of service, retail, hourly types of jobs are, and if they're open right now, most of those folks are still looking for people. I mean, you see help wanted signs most places. So we have this big mismatch that's happening right now. So even for new businesses, they seem to to somewhat be struggling to hire except for the super high, uh, high echelon, you know, big, those big tech or other big companies that have this sense, I think they're, they're capitalizing on their perceived sense of stability right now in an otherwise unstable, chaotic world. So, yeah, I just, I appreciate you weighing in, giving some, some uh, sense there. What do you think about entrepreneurship and startups right now and over the next couple of years where, you know, what, what does, and, and you even think about like regional strategies and you go, okay, we want to try to attract more capital, attract more entrepreneurs to this area. Well, the job creator, the entrepreneur might move to that place, but they may be the only one there. All the other people that they have as a part of their business could be all kinds of other places. And so as you think about that and economic development, how do you think about the entrepreneur, him or herself, the capital, the other services and needs and kind of the multiplier effects of it in a world where you could have a completely virtual company virtual team yeah um so a bunch of different thoughts on that so uh so first of all you know this is an opportunity for if we're gonna sort of think about the type of entrepreneurs that you and i work with mostly you know high tech venture back of the companies um you know we've seen now an a huge opportunity for that to diffuse geographically Mm-hmm. Um, I'm convinced that it will will see a permanent shift to a degree outside of Silicon Valley, right? To, sorry, um, to other locations. Okay. Um, <laughs> All good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think we've seen a permanent shift 
out of the valley to a degree, what degree I don't know, or high, other high cost markets like New York. Um, I do think it's been somewhat overstated so sure. far what the longer term effects of that will be. Um, I think second tier cities, like, and, and I'll say that in a generous way uh, mm -hmm. or not generous way, <laughs> depending on your perspective, but like just under the cut. So like Austin, um, Raleigh, Durham, those kind of places, mm -hmm. San Diego, I feel like those are going to be huge beneficiaries. Because mm -hmm. they have than, just enough, right? Like they have enough. Yep. Yeah. It's not yeah. my hometown where, you know, you don't know if there's another computer programmer within 30 miles. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's the more likely destination. Um, you know, we do have good data on migration of entrepreneurs and, um, and, and talent and, and personal connections and quality of life are really important, but, but above that is work opportunity. So it's mm -hmm. in that order of work. And then the personal connections, quality well, of life. Do you think that's flipped it? Well, has flipped it all for sort of the kinds of entrepreneurs that we, that we think about where they're saying, you know, I can do this anywhere now. Let me be more intentional about where I, where I do it. I do. Um, especially those people who have the luxury of those strong networks mm -hmm. in the hubs, right? So if you have a really strong network in Silicon Valley, and you want to live somewhere else and you're, you can get on a plane and, you know, maintain those relationships. I think that's, those, those are great people to have relocating to your city, huh. right? This thing we've observed in the data over the years recently, in, in recent years, these on a per capita basis, these little pockets of venture backed activity in, um, uh, um, uh, what's the, um, Oh, Park City, Utah. Mm -hmm. see yeah, that? Silicon Slopes. Yeah. Yeah, you see it there. You see that in the data. You see it in Breckenridge in Colorado, mm -hmm. these little mountain towns, Telluride, um, on a per capita basis, obviously. Mm -hmm. So this experiment has already been going on. I expect you know, that will pro proliferate. Um, so it's just a it's a really good opportunity for, for this to happen um, in more places. You mentioned the, what's the economic uh, impact of that? Well, uh, it's useful, you know, and you brought up the multiplier. So um, there's a great book that everyone should read. I think it's, I think it's the most important economics book written in the last decade. Um, maybe it was published in 2013. It's called The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti. Uh -huh. He's the chair of the economics department at um, UC Berkeley. And he says, look, there's two segments of the economy, the tradable sector and the non-tradable sector. The tradable sector makes goods and services that can be bought and sold uh, anywhere around the country, around the world. Um, that segment of the economy is really good for driving productivity because it's facing international competition and it brings revenue into your region that can then be distributed through the non-tradable sector, which produces goods and services that must be bought and sold locally. Not just low, lower skill, lower paying like taxi drivers and cooks, but also doctors and lawyers and that sort of thing. Um, so you want, a, you want a robust tradable sector to draw in income to the region that mm -hmm. then feeds the local services economy. Mm -hmm. Even better if you have a strong segment of that tradable sector in what Moretti is calling the innovative Innovation. sector. Yeah. Yeah. Not just, not just how you and I think of software, hardware, 
computer mm-hmm. services, but more broadly, you sure. know. I think, I think of, of it as kind of IP based. Yep. Right, where, yeah, I can, we, you can explosively compete, right? Even a medical device that has yep. a lot of IP, so yeah. Yep, agreed. Um, so agree with all that. And so these businesses have strong multiplier effects, i.e. the spillover benefits to the local services economy are particularly large, uh-huh. meaning it's much better to be a barista, you know, in Silicon Valley than in the middle of uh, an industrial sure. wasteland. And obviously, we've seen maybe that went a little too far. Uh, urban agglomeration run amok. Uh-huh. But the point being, there's more job security and higher wages for everyone if you're located in a city that has a healthy amount of that activity going on. Uh Not just because the workers are paid uh, higher wages, um, but also because those activities tend to cluster, right? They tend to, technical activities tend to have specialized service providers and specialized inputs. And that's sort of um, a positive uh, reinforcing feedback loop that had made that was the reason why in spite of it being so crowded and so expensive this urban agglomeration was happening mm-hmm. now um you know that was that was predicated on the fact that we had to be in a physical co-location now we've gone through this huge experiment that's proving to a degree i think it varies on the person on the team on the type of work you're doing you know whether or not that can be done on a permanent basis and so that second aspect of it, you know, the clustering agglomeration, you know, will that, you know, if you have the, 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 the CEO of a company, of, a, of one of these high-tech companies in your community, but you don't have the other workers, you know, you've get, you got the first effect, but you may not have that second. Yeah, and that, that's what's going to be interesting to see. And I, you know, as I was saying earlier, I feel like where, where I am here, I mean, a couple things that, that I've studied, observed at least, one is, um, we have a lot of people who work for innovative companies here, but but the headquarters isn't here. So I think we're getting sort of a, a wage, nice wage, but not the not really the multiplier uh, effect. And then the other we have is the non-tradable, as I would call it, that are exporting now exporting their capital to other places. Um, they, you know, they've created, and this could be the doctors, lawyers, this could be the real estate uh, folks that are exporting their capital to other places because they're doing, you know, they're moving to real estate in other markets and they're kind of asset managing or they're contributing to venture in a fund in another location like Silicon Valley or, or New York, let's say, as an example. And those I would say actually have negative, and from my observation, are having negative economic effects mm-hmm. uh, versus saying we could allocate capital to the innovation economy locally, uh, and that could be our our way of um, actually moving from maybe the the non tradable to the tradable because you know if I'm somebody who does hourly work or or you've seen people that are doing, you know, they do hourly work, but they do it in other four companies in other places versus locally. So how, how do you think about sort of, you know, microeconomic flows? Because I think that's something that's not well understood um, by people in the, in the financial and capital allocation decisions they're making. Well, it, I mean, it makes, um, 
it makes sense to me why people want to live there even if their company's not there because sure. the quality of life is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, of course, you know, is that uh, the generally speaking, companies that grow up in a place where their headquarters is are more vested in those communities. That's right. And so are the executives, um, right? Which also, you know, you know, is another factor to consider in this whole virtual environment into perpetuity, which is, okay, fine, Facebook says, and Twitter say, okay, you can work anywhere, but is that really true? Um, can you advance your career into right. management and executive roles? I don't know. If the answer is no, then it undermines the whole thing. That's right. Yeah. If you end up in a hybrid situation where you have sort of the have and have nots or something, that's right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, as you said, I mean, you know, that headquarters thing can be a big deal um, because those, those are not always, but they have the potential to be corporate stewards, right, mm-hmm. of a community. The, the corporate philanthropists who can actually have a really big impact with the right leadership, it can just take one or two of those to really drive meaningful change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like what you're describing a little bit is a lot of well-paid, well, um, well-resourced, um, you know, uh, income earners and investors who are just there for the quality of life but aren't really building anything for the community right yeah um yeah so and, that and, is, and they're just when they're in, in as an investor here then they're just looking for maximum return single single value not um and you know and i think part of like the 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 goal obviously uh, of a startup community is to create an exciting inspiring participation uh for for those that that can see hey this this can create abundance for everybody it's not zero sum it's um you know a better quality of life for everybody is actually a better quality of life for um, you too yeah and that's the you know look that's a lesson that i think this country is struggling to face for sure Uh, you know i I, look, I, I still remember uh, being in Brazil and Rio de Janeiro. Re, re, uh, Brazil traditionally has the highest, some of the highest income inequality mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. wealth inequality even more. Yes. The United States has either surpassed, I think it's, I think it's eclipsed it actually. Wow. Um, it's pretty bad here. I remember spending time in Rio and um, this, I don't know, uh, I guess I was last there in maybe 15 years ago. Wow, it's hard to it's about think. when I was there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but but Rio is this beautiful city. Um, it it's I spent time in an area near Ipanema Beach. It's one of the wealthiest, I think it's actually the wealthiest neighborhood. Lots of mansion like homes mm-hmm. behind walls and gates. And up the hill is one of these favelas, right? Yeah. The, the, which, the which from a distance looks beautiful. Yes. Until you go in one. Yes. Absolutely. And it's right next to this. And I was thinking, boy, these wealthy families, um, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's like a complicated relationship mm-hmm. with the government, right? Maybe the government wasn't, is, is failing, right? In so many ways. But um, 
if there wasn't so much income inequality, maybe they wouldn't have to have private guards with machine guns taking their mm -hmm. children to school. Maybe they wouldn't have to live behind these walls in fear of kidnappings, which is rampant. Mm -hmm. And that just feels like not worth it to me. That's right. You know, you want people to do better around you, I believe. It, it improves right. the quality of life for you. So that's to your right. point, that's a very long-winded way of saying, absolutely. And if this country, people don't think that we're approaching that, they're wrong. The that's data right. is a different story. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, that's, a, that's a, I mean, a topic for, yeah, the, the following, I think, couple decades at least um, to see where we as a country decide to, to go. And, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully people like you and I will support you in whatever way I can, we, you know, can help illuminate more uh, both data and, and even, you know, heart. Like, I, I think we, we all uh, we all can do our part to, to help with that. So, Ian, I got it. Um, yeah, let me go ahead. add one more thing because I think this is kind of useful. Yes. Uh, for those people in your community who, who might be interested in um, investing in entrepreneurship, as a means of making their cities more vibrant, their regions more vibrant. Brad has this great thing where he calls it, Brad Feld, my co-author, um, he says, think of, think of investing in startups or angel investing as a form of for-profit philanthropy. Mm, that is so powerful, yes. Right, it's like you're very, you're very accustomed to putting your name on a hospital wing or on a placard at the, you know, the, the local zoo um, or you know, whatever it is. Um, at the opera house, the ballet, whatever it is that you're, these, these causes, like these civic causes that people mm -hmm. donate to. But the startups that you invest in, most of them will fail. And that is treated like a, like a philanthropic donation. Mm -hmm. But two things might happen. First of all, you might make some real money from the ones that succeed, <laughs> right? Yep. And, and if you do, those companies are going to create many jobs in that community and they will stay and those people will create more jobs and you'll have a more prosperous community and one that people are more vested in. More yes. And okay. so that would be my argument is try for-profit philanthropy uh, by investing in startup companies. Oh, I think that that's great. Well, that, that, I think that's a great way to sort of put a pin in, in this part of this discussion and probably to be continued again. So last thing, what what has you most optimistic about the future of innovation? Um, well, first of all, I I mean we have just gone through, like I said, this massive dislocation in society, in in our the structure of our economy. A couple of things have happened, right? Well, more than a couple, but first the we have new problems to solve mm -hmm. right like like we've discussed entrepreneurs see those opportunities second i think a lot of neglected problems have you know fully revealed themselves right things we haven't been paying attention to are are super clear um not that this is covid related but you and i both live in california mm -hmm. and the wildfires this year were four times the record which was yes. set in 2018 we've got a real problem with climate change uh -huh. and it's undeniable here. So I feel like, I hope that the stressors in this world are forcing people to focus on these things. Yes. And the third is that 
I don't know. This has been a very difficult time in life. And I, I, I feel like so many people are questioning deeply what they're doing with their lives, mm-hmm. not just in the usual way, you know, sort of, oh, I'm in a corporation and I'm it's a soulless corporation. I'm exchanging a paycheck for, you yes. know, uh, whatever. I feel like I'm not contributing to the world. But I think people are, 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 are really feeling it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for those reasons, I'm super optimistic about the future of innovation and entrepreneurship. I'm super optimistic about the growth and proliferation of startup communities. Uh, for the reasons we discussed, this is, an oppor- this is an opportunity for new cities to welcome in entrepreneurs with deep networks uh, and wealth that they've created in other communities. Um, and that's a, that's a chance for them to become embedded in those communities and, and be the, the future leaders, uh, civic leaders in those communities, seeding entrepreneurship for generations to come. Um, and I also think we're just going to have a lot more gratitude around community in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't wait to spend time with people. Um, I'm an introvert, actually. And so I'm, I, I love the one-to-ones and small groups. Events can kind of overwhelm mm-hmm. me. But I'll tell you what, um, I'll have a lot more appreciation for that now. And so um, I think for all those reasons, startups and startup communities have a, have a bright future um, on the other side of this, whenever that may be. Hmm. Amazing. Well, Ian, so good to see you. Thank you again for, uh, for joining me and sharing your, your thoughts and, and wisdom um, with my audience and, and with me. And I have greatly enjoyed the, uh, the friendship that we have, have built uh, in recent, recent weeks and months and, and more to come. So uh, too. good to see you and we will talk soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.